The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, everyone. I want to really express appreciation to Tito Roderick for sharing that testimony. I think uh, what you shared this morning really fits well with um, what I want to share about on this topic of joy as we launch into our Advent series. I was not made aware of some of the things that you were sharing, and so we definitely um, keep that in prayer, but are um, so grateful that you can testify to God's goodness even in the midst of some of the things that you've been going through. Um, We are entering into Advent season, and we're going to basically explore the same themes that we explored last year. Uh, Traditionally, the order of these themes is hope, uh, peace, joy, and then love. Um, But we're going to look through it in a slightly different order, and it's because uh, we've had to make uh, a minor adjustment to the preaching calendar, and so that's why the order that we're covering the themes is a little bit different than what's traditionally done. And so I will start off the series today with the theme of joy, And then uh, Pastor Lester and Pastor Peter will cover the next two themes of peace and hope. And then I will preach on our Christmas service on the theme of love for Advent. Well, the label worst year ever has been thrown around a lot these days, hasn't it? Um, And it's, you know, obviously in reference to the year that we're just kind of putting a close to right now. But historians are really quick to remind us that there have definitely been worse years in history than 2020. Uh, let me just go over a few of the candidates with you. Is In 536, it's interesting, 536 seems to stand out among historians as arguably uh, the worst year ever in recorded history. And there seems to be a consensus on that. What had happened was that there was this massive volcano that erupted in Iceland. And it basically covered the entire world in darkness for one and a half to two years. There was snow in the wintertime, in the the summertime. And it created this terrible cold that uh, just basically blanketed the entire world. Um, There was basically uh, crop failures worldwide and global starvation. And then there's also 1349. Uh, That was the worst pandemic in recorded history, known as the Black Death, or what we would call the bubonic plague, when uh, half the population of Europe was killed. Or you can also look at 1918, the Spanish flu, uh, which interestingly we call the Spanish flu, uh, but as far as we know, the first case was actually detected in Kansas City. And uh, it ended up infecting a third of the world's population and killing 50 million people before it was all over. If we focus more on the U.S., we have the years of the Great Depression, 1929 to 1933, where uh, millions of American lives were horribly impacted by that economic downturn. In 1968, both Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy uh, were assassinated. The country was at war in Vietnam. And during the Democratic National Convention, 
right here in Chicago, uh, the police ended up beating up some protesters, which sparked riots all over the, the country. Uh, and it's kind of sad to think that 2020 is included as a candidate in this short list of horrible years like this, isn't it? But a lot has happened in 2020 that we can't deny. It began in January with the death of basketball great Kobe Bryant, and the news only got worse from there. Uh, The biggest issue, obviously, was the pandemic, which has infected to date uh, over 60 million people and has claimed the lives of almost 1.5 million people worldwide. But this year has also seen uh, record California wildfires that have built, burnt over 4 million acres of land and killed 32 people, incinerating entire towns in a single day. But they were eclipsed by the Australian bushfires that burned 46 million acres, killing millions of animals and 33 people who also died. There were more hurricanes in 2020. I don't know if you even knew this. In any other year, this would be headline news. But because of everything else, it barely even showed up on the radar. There were more hurricanes in 2020 than in any previous year since we've been keeping records of it. And the country is divided uh, as more than we can imagine in history with protests and riots erupting all across the land after the killing of George Floyd and other black Americans. And the tension has only grown worse with one of the most contentious elections in U.S. history, which has left over 50 million Americans believing that their candidate lost because of massive fraud and a rigged election. And then, to top it off, let's not forget murder hornets, okay? I don't even want to say anything about that. Um, 2020 may not be the worst year ever in recorded history, but it's arguably the worst year most of us have lived through in our generation. At the end of most years, I I tend to show these year-in-review videos that look back at all the inspiring and significant events of the year. And the truth is, I'm not even sure anyone's going to make videos like that for 2020. Because I think the truth is, most people don't want to be reminded of what happened this year. We'd rather just push it back into the background and just hope that 2021 will be a better year. And in light of everything that we have gone through and actually are still going through this year, where are we supposed to find joy? Because beyond these global and national crises and disasters, I haven't even gone into the personal tragedies and struggles that many of you have gone through, that even Tito Roderick had just shared and testified to this morning. Uh, A friend of mine just passed away, and uh, I'm still heartbroken over his passing right now. And so as we prepare to celebrate this Christmas holiday, I think it's important to be reminded of the unique nature of Christian joy. 
And the way that I'm going to break, out, break down this message is simply this, is I want to first talk about the nature of joy, and then secondly, I want to explore a bit about what the content of that joy comes from, particularly as it relates to the Christmas message. And then lastly, I want to just say a brief word on the way that we nurture that joy in our hearts in a practical way. Okay? So let's begin with the nature of joy. I mentioned when I preached on this topic of joy last year how many preachers often make such a sharp distinction between happiness and joy. And the, the argument typically goes that worldly happiness is viewed as an unstable emotion, while Christian joy is more of an intentional state of mind uh, that's irrespective of the circumstances that we face. And I do think that there is an important distinction that is being made there that I want to affirm that has mostly to do with the source of the joy. But I'm going to argue that I think we can overstate the difference between what the world calls happiness and the Bible's teaching on joy, particularly in terms of what the expression of it is. And what I'm saying is, is this, is joy is a feeling. I think that's first and foremost something we need to establish. I'm going to argue, even from a biblical viewpoint, joy is a feeling, an emotion. It is not a conviction or a principle or an idea. Okay? So that's the first teaching that I really want to convey to you. And like all emotions, we are... Only, we, are, we have only limited control over joy. Um, in other words, we can't simply will ourselves into joy when we feel sad. Or just as we can't calm ourselves when we're nervous or anxious. You just, you just can't by brute force force yourself to experience that. Emotions simply don't work this way. And this is worrisome, isn't it? Because our actions and our choices are largely driven by our emotions. I mean, I think the truth is we all like to think that we make decisions rationally, that we do so by thinking our ways into our choices in life. But in truth, we are far more influenced by our emotions than any of us realize. In other words, we act and we choose based on our emotions. In his book, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis points out that joy and pleasure are similar in that they both leave us with a good feeling that makes us want more of them, okay? But they're different in that pleasure is usually within our control, while joy rarely ever is. In other words, what Lewis is saying is this, and this is an important distinction here. We typically know exactly what we need to do when we want to experience more of the same pleasure that we like so much. We, we know how to create that pleasure. But joy is far more elusive. Even if you desperately want to feel joy, you can't simply automatically generate it or produce it in your life. You can even recreate experiences that once gave you great joy only to find that those exact same conditions that you've reproduced 
don't actually produce the joy that we once felt when going through that experience. And yet, here's the dilemma. The Bible is filled with commands for us to rejoice. Psalm 32, verse 11, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous, seeing all you who are upright in heart. Joel 2, 23, Be glad, people of Zion, rejoice in the Lord your God. Matthew 5, verse 12, Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. And then lastly, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, Rejoice always. These commands almost seem cruel, don't they? I mean, if joy is an emotion that is largely beyond our control, how can the Bible command us to feel joy like this in our heart? Well, let me clarify something. Earlier on, I said that joy is not a conviction or a principle or an idea. But what I meant by that is that in any given moment, we can't just will or think our way into joy or feeling the right feelings, whatever they might be, in a given situation. But that doesn't mean that we are hopelessly at the mercy of our emotions. We, in other words, can learn to shape how we emotionally react to certain circumstances and situations by affirming the things that we believe and value in life that will then drive those feelings that we experience. Let me see if I could describe it like this. Have you ever been home alone and then you heard a noise somewhere else in the house and you know that you're the only one that's supposed to be in the house? No one else is supposed to be there. And in that moment, you don't tell yourself, uh-oh, I think I might be in danger. There may be an intruder. This may be a fight-or-flight situation. And so in order for me to get up the appropriate levels of adrenaline that I may need to react to this situation, I think I'm going to be afraid now. I mean, nobody enters into an emotion like that, do we? I mean, if you do, you, you ought to see a doctor, okay? In that instant that you feel that you were, are worried that there's an intruder in your, in your home, just by instinct, your heart will begin racing, and you'll feel that pit in your stomach, and your legs may even feel so weak that you can barely stand, right? These things, in other words, happen automatically, and the emotions that you're going to experience in that moment are driven largely by your beliefs about reality, what's happening right then. In other words, at first you were completely calm and relaxed because you believed you were home alone. But in the instant that you believe that an intruder is in your house now, your heart responds immediately and appropriately with fear. This is an example of how powerful our beliefs drive our emotions. Whatever you believe about reality will lead to certain feelings that you feel inside. And so what I can say next is this. What we value and believe about our lives has the power to control our emotions. 
which in turn will drive our choices and actions. And so what I want to ask you is this. What are the moments that produce genuine joy in your heart? And what do those moments reveal about your true beliefs and values in life? What does your joy teach you about what's really going on inside of your heart? Well, let me talk about the content of Christian joy that comes from the Christmas message. The story of Jesus' birth is one that is filled with joy. You could argue it is the dominant theme of the birth narratives. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 to 12 says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And so the angels tell the shepherds that this news of Jesus' birth is going to produce great joy to the people who hear it. Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, went to visit her aunt Elizabeth, who was also pregnant with Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And Luke records what happened when Mary went to spend a few months with Elizabeth during their mutual pregnancies. In Luke chapter 1, verse 41 to 44, it says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. It's crazy. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus' cousin John leaps for joy in his mother's womb before he was even born. And that was a sign of God that Jesus had come into our world to bring a message of great joy to everyone who would receive it. And Mary responds to that experience with these words in verses 46 to 49. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit, again, here's that theme, rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. There's just joy coming infectiously in every corner of the story. Look at the response of the neighbors to hearing that Elizabeth had given birth at her old age. In verses 57 to 58, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. You see, joy is spilling over in every direction of the news of the birth of John and Jesus. But you could kind of play devil's advocate here and just argue, well, why wouldn't there be joy? 
After all, bringing a child into this world is one of the greatest joys that we can experience in life. We don't really have to bring faith into this matter, do we? Especially when you consider Elizabeth, who was probably beyond childbearing years, and she still got pregnant in this great miracle of, of pregnancy. And I'm sure that just the fact that these children were born into these families was a part of it. But the joy that these people are experiencing goes far deeper than the joy of simple childbirth. Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, couldn't believe that his wife was actually pregnant when the angel told him this. And as a result, God shut his mouth for nine months so that he became mute and couldn't speak. And after his son was born, the extended family gathered around and they assumed that they would name this son Zechariah after his father. But Elizabeth insisted that his name must be John. And so they protested that no one in the family carried that name, John or Johanna. And so they turned to Zechariah to get his input on the matter. And he writes down because he's mute there. And look at verses 62 to 64. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free. And he began to speak, praising God. Zechariah confirms Elizabeth's choice to name their son John, breaking tradition. Because that's the name that the angel had given him. And he, w- and he was told that his, when, when he was told that his wife was pregnant. And with that act of faith, Zechariah's mouth suddenly opens up and he can talk again. And like all the others, the first thing that comes to his mouth are praises to God that reveal a heart that is filled with joy. And the people, uh, interestingly, who are doing journey groups right now, they're learning the spiritual discipline in this current moment of silence and solitude. It's interesting that the response to Zechariah's lack of faith is a God-imposed nine months of silence where Zechariah is not allowed to talk. And it sounds like a punishment, but I think it was actually God's grace in disguise. Because during those long months of imposed silence, it seems like Zechariah must spend a long time just in meditation and prayer about what the angel had told him, and then linking that message to the Bible. Because right after he begins to talk, he gives this amazing prophecy that is just filled with reference after reference to the Old Testament of how the birth of his son and the birth of his nephew are connected to what the Old Testament says. And he gives, through that prophecy, a much fuller understanding of what the source of the true joy is coming from in this message of these births. In verses 68 to 79, it says this, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. 
He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the land of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. In his prophecy, Zechariah points back to the troubled history of Israel and how they have suffered over these many years. And during this Bible Project series, we've been looking at a lot of that history. How from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, God had promised to send a deliverer into the world who would one day be the savior of humanity and restore all that was broken by sin in the garden that day. And how God chose Israel of all the nations to be a part of the answer to that promise. And yet how rather than being part of the answer, they became part of the problem. Rather than being a light to the Gentiles, they ended up turning their backs on God and worshiping the gods of these foreign nations. And because of their sin, God sent his people into exile in Babylon for 70 years. And even after returning to their land, they never actually experienced the peace that they longed for again. And they never regained their sovereignty as a proud and independent nation. Instead, they were constantly harassed and threatened as they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple. And they were occupied by one foreign power after another. And even at the time of Zechariah, they were under the oppressive power of the Roman Empire. And so Zechariah prays that prayer, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, verse 71. And yet Zechariah understood that it would be a distortion of Israel's history if he portrayed his own nation as nothing more than victims in the story. He knew that it was because of their own sin that they were experiencing these troubles. And so he knows that one of the things that the Messiah must do when he comes is to deal with their sin. And that's why in verse 77 it says, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. As we looked at in recent messages, the glory of God's presence never returned to the temple after it was rebuilt. And then for 400 years, not another prophet was sent by God to his people. And so by the time that you get to Zechariah's generation, I think there was a genuine worry in the hearts of the people. Have we broken covenant with God so much that he has now given up on us? Does his silence mean he has permanently left us and will never be with us again? Has God, in other words, abandoned us? And the joy that filled Zechariah's heart as well as Mary's heart and all the other people that celebrated the birth of Jesus was the realization that even if their own nation could not be faithful to the covenants that they had made with God, that God would remain faithful to his promises, which were now coming true through the birth of his own son, 
and the birth of his nephew, Jesus. See, Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Samuel and on and on. None of these men proved that they were the Messiah, that that was promised. And so as we looked at in recent messages through the prophet Isaiah, God declares none were found worthy. None. None were worthy of the title Messiah. And so what he says through his prophet is, I will save my people by my own arm. By my own power, by my own strength, will I save my people. That's why Zechariah prophesied in his prophecy in verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant. That word horn of salvation, that phrase horn of salvation is confusing to us because it's not a common one. What does Zechariah mean when he calls Jesus a horn of salvation? Well, he is not referring to the horn as a musical instrument, the shofar the ram's horn, that was so common in Israel in those days. Instead, you have to look to what these references of horn are that connect to the Messiah and the hope of God. And what you find is that it refers to the strength of an animal when it talks about the horn. Psalm 92, verse 9 through 10, For surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured out on me. Micah chapter 4, verse 13. Rise and thresh, daughter of Zion. I will give you horns of iron. I will give you hooves of bronze. And you will break to pieces many nations. It's talking about the strength that you bear is being located in the horns, just like it is true of an ox or a ram. But the most direct reference comes from one of David's songs that he wrote after God delivered him from his enemies. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 3, it says, My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and my horn of salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. From violent people you save me. You see? Zechariah pictures Jesus as a horn of salvation, meaning that by God's own strength, by the sheer might of his own determination, his will, he will fight for his people and do for them what they could not do by their own efforts. In other words, what Zechariah was saying was, despite our sad, sad history of just one failure after another before God, God had come to save his own people by his own arm. I think the prophet Elijah understood the failure of his own people. After a great victory on Mount Carmel, when he defeated the prophets of Baal and Asherah, it seemed as if nothing in the nation changed. As far as Elijah could tell, the only impact of that dramatic demonstration of God's power on that mountain was simply that Queen Jezebel said that she was going to kill him. And so in 1 Kings, verse 19, verse 4, it says, He came to a broom brush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. What is Elijah saying? He's saying we're just a horrible group of people. You know, God does this amazing miracle on this mountain, And there is no revival. There is no repentance. The nation just goes on as usual. 
And as he looks at his own heart and the discouragement he feels, he says, I'm no different than my ancestors. We're just a bunch of lost people living in darkness. Isaiah understood this identification with their sad history. When he said in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah is saying the same thing. What is wrong with us? Why are we such a messed up people? But what the great joy came from in this Christmas message was that the great discovery that God had not abandoned them. Despite all of their failures and disappointments and all of the ways that they turned their backs on God, the great news of Christmas was that God said, I will nevertheless be your champion and I will overcome your enemies and I will secure that victory. Despite all of your unfaithfulness, I will prove myself to be faithful to you. That is the joy that filled Simeon's heart when he understood that God would be true to his promises in Luke chapter 2, verse 25 through 32. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. That is the joy of the Christmas message, is that it doesn't all ride on my performance and my ability to remain faithful to the things I have promised to God because God says, by my own arm, by my own might, I will secure your salvation and your victory. And as you think about that truth, I want to simply ask you this today. What are your family secrets? What is the legacy that your family bears that you see creeping into your own life? Because as I counsel more and more people at our church, I discover what a long shadow our family history casts on us. And you begin to see patterns and behaviors in your life that in a very uncomfortable way resemble things that have happened in previous generations in your own family. And there could be the same kind of despair creeping in that Elijah and Isaiah felt. I am no better than my ancestors. What are the things that are bringing you down? What are the, th the failures, the broken legacies, the disappointments, the bad choices that you have made? And maybe it was one discovery to see those things manifesting in your own life. But then you begin to see the trickle-down effect of that even into your children. And you say, whoa, I'm seeing some things that worry me about my own kids. And what's happening in our family line? 
What's happening inside of us? I think that's how the Jews felt during that moment when Christ came into the world. We're just a group of losers. None of us, despite our best intentions, can beat these odds. It's hopeless. And yet, the great message of Christmas is despite all the ways that you have failed as a people, God says, I will keep true to my promises to save you. So then let me close with just a word of how do we nurture this joy in our hearts. As I said, you can't will yourself into being more joyful. But the beliefs you hold in your heart can either produce joy or discouragement. That much is true. And I want to ask you, have you been feeling more joy in 2020 or discouragement? What are you, in other words, meditating on these days? Are you focusing so much on your failures and disappointments? Or maybe it's not even the focus on yourself, but you're focusing on other people. And people have disappointed you. And there's just, just this overwhelming feeling of anger toward others, of the way that others have failed you and let you down. And what I would argue is this, is what we need to do is focus more on what God has done for us. If we want to experience the joy that God has promised in our lives. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In Philippians 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That's God's command to us. You cannot automatically in that moment determine you're going to be joyful. You just can't do it like we can't do it for any emotion. But what you can willfully, intentionally do is fix your eyes on Christ and what he has done, which will take our eyes off of ourselves and other people. And in that practice, we can experience the true joy of Christmas. I'm going to invite you just to come into a moment of prayer as we're about to come to the Lord's table here and close in a time of worship. And can I just simply come back to that question I've asked you at the beginning of the message? What are the things that produce joy in your life? And I think if we're brutally honest, we'd have to say, you know, the only moments that I just seem to get any relief from the ongoing stresses and depression and anxieties that I feel is when I just watch Netflix where I play my stupid video games. And it just gives me just a, a moment when I can just zone out and just not think about all the worries of my life. But maybe there's something so much greater that God has for us in the story of Christmas and what it means that he so loved us 
that he gave us, his son. And maybe what we need to do is rather than looking for mind-numbing distractions of entertainment during this Advent season, we need to intentionally and willfully draw our attention to this amazing story of God's love for us. What are the things that are bringing you down in this season of your life? What are the things that are really discouraging you, turning your heart bitter? Maybe it's looking in the mirror. Maybe it's looking at other people. And what Christ says is, look to me and me alone. I apologize that we didn't uh, give enough uh, of a lead time for many of you to get the elements at home to prepare to take the Lord's Supper at your homes. Uh, hopefully, by that text that was sent out this morning, you had enough time to do it. As the text said, we will be taking communion every week going through this Advent season, and we want to take the communion right now. <clears throat> We've really increased the frequency of taking communion because I think just being apart physically like this has really made us kind of lose sight of the fact that we are a community bonded together in the love of God. And I think taking communion together is one of the powerful ways that we can continue to affirm that even though we physically cannot be together like this, we are one in Christ and one in God's spirit. As Christ gathered his disciples in that upper room that day, he told them that this Passover meal was being radically transformed in its meaning to talk about what he was about to do on the cross as he would shed his blood and break his body for the sake of our sins on the cross. He says, as long as you take of that bread and take of this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And so even as you think about your struggle to seek joy in your life and the way that your eyes focus on all the wrong things, Maybe by coming to this Lord's table, God can just bring you a little closer to his own heart and him through his spirit sharing his heart for you and his love for you. And so I want to invite you, if you would at this time, to go ahead and take first from the bread and then next take from the cup. And then just go ahead and pray for a couple of minutes. I'll close us in a word of prayer. And then our brother Jonathan will come and lead us in a, in a time of closing here.